Praise the Lord. If you would, turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 12. 1 Samuel chapter 12. We're going to be talking about a life well lived. And in this chapter, uh, a torch is passed, if you will, from uh, Samuel to Saul. When you think about the torch being passed, we can't help be reminded of uh, the Greek Olympic games, you know, and the passing of the torch is one of those competitions, if you will, uh, that actually took place before the games. So most of the games were about uh, speed and about being able to be the fastest in whatever the competition, either short distance or long distance, that the, the, the run or whatever the, the different event was. But the torch ceremony took place before the games began. And it is what preceded our Olympic torch ceremony that we see in the Olympic games today. Now, what happened in Greece as they did this was they had about 10 to 12 different uh, competitors, and they were runners that would take and have a bundle of sticks that were placed into a tube. These sticks were, were dripped in a tar material, so they, they had tar on them, and then they would light the sticks, and each of the guys would run through the streets of Athens over to the Colosseum there. But the, the object was to get there without your torch going out. And it wasn't an easy task because what they did was they actually put obstacles in the streets along the path so that the person running, if they ran too fast the flame would go out and they would be disqualified. If they ran too slow, then their, uh, their sticks would burn out and their flame would flame out. They'd once again be disqualified. And if they went in a way that, that the wind blew their, their flame out, they would be disqualified. And so winning was not dependent upon being fast. It was dependent upon the skill of being able to make it across the finish line with your torch lit. And that is a difficult task for anyone to achieve. We've seen pastors, business leaders, as well as political leaders that are passing the torch from one leader to the next. And some have had better results than others doing that. But today in the text, we're going to see the, the torch, if you will, being passed from Samuel, the prophet, who has led God's people, to now Saul, who will be the first king of Israel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we learn life lessons today from Samuel and his life, Lord, that you would speak to us about our own very lives. Lord, that as we come to the end of our lives, that we can look back and say, I have run well. I have finished the race. I have made the course that you have placed before me in a way that if I've done it well, Lord, and I've kept the flame of Jesus burning brightly in my life. Lord, that's all of our desires. And so teach us, Lord, to finish well, to live a life well for you this day. In Jesus' name, amen. 
So let's kind of get ourselves caught up to speed, if we will. Remember back in chapter 9, we're in chapter 12 this morning, but in chapter 9, Saul is told, hey, you're going to be the next king of Israel. I mean, that pretty well surprised him. Samuel had that word for him, remember? And then in chapter 10, Samuel uh, has anointed Saul and, and, and told him that he's going to be the king, and then God transforms Saul's heart. Remember, he gives him an, actually another heart. And then in chapter 11, last week we studied how that Saul led God's people to victory. Remember, the people of Ammon had come against the, the people of Israel, and Nahash, that, that nasty king, wanted to to gouge the right eye out of everyone in the city. And, and, and so Saul rallied the nation together, and they attacked the Amorites and destroyed them all. But here in this chapter, in chapter 12, this is the time of Saul's coronation, if you will. He is confirmed as Israel's king. Now, it's important to note, and Pastor Aaron mentioned it actually like a couple of times the last few messages, he mentioned, remember, there was no palace. Israel had no palace. There was no throne for Saul to, to sit on. There wasn't even a crown that we know of that he wore. He didn't have any of those things. Israel had no earthly king up until this point for hundreds of years. But what Saul does get as king is he gets God's selection. He gets God's anointing and God's empowerment. That's a whole lot better than a crown, a thorn, and a palace. Amen? And so we begin in, in chapter 12, verse 1, and Samuel is saying, look, examine my life. He's saying to the people, examine my life. Look at my life. Now Samuel said to all Israel, indeed, I have heeded your voice and all that you said to me and have made a king over you. And now here is the king walking before you. And I am old and gray-headed. And look, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my childhood to this day. Here I am. Witness against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? And whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I cheated? Whom I have oppressed? Or whom have I, whose hand have I received any bribe with which to blind my eyes? And I will restore it to you. And they said, you have not cheated us or oppressed us, nor have you taken anything from any man's head. Then he said to them, the Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. And they answered, he is witness. So this is Samuel's last public address. We'll still see Samuel in the next few chapters, but this is his last big public address. And he says, look, he had the opportunity. He tells the people, I had the opportunity to be rich, but I did not choose to take advantage of the position I held. Instead, remember, he was a traveling or circuit minister. He went to different cities, and he, he ministered to the people. He encouraged them in the ways of God and, and prophesied to them. And so Samuel calls all of Israel to witness and bear witness to his integrity. I have lived a life of integrity before you. My life has been well lived. Wow. Now, that's a rare farewell speech 
Because not only did he say those things, but they all agreed. He meant them, and they were true. Imagine how many people that we know that could come to the end of their lives and say, try to witness against me. Have I done anything wrong? Have you noticed any wrongdoing in any way in my life? It's interesting. No deceit, no dishonesty, no debased speech could be labeled against Samuel. So what about us today? What if we were to call all your family members, all your friends, even your best friends, your neighbors, your coworker, and maybe even your tax accountant, and we said, look, can you bear witness? Has there been anything dishonest, any deceit, any wrongdoing that you've ever seen in this person's life? Wow. That's a tall order, isn't it? But you know what? You and I, each one of us, we are living our legacy. Every one of us are living a legacy. Whether we like it, whether we realize it or not, we're all living one, and we will leave one. Either good or bad, full or empty, beautiful or ugly, impactful or insignificant, remembered or forgotten. So what will be the epitaph on our tombstone? And will those words be true to the life we lived? There's a lot. I, I mean, I like to actually walk through graves, uh, graveyards at times if I'm there and actually read the epitaphs. And I wonder how many of those are, are really fully true about that, that person. Someone wisely stated that there are two dates on every tombstone, the day we were born, the date of our death. But what really matters is what is done between those two dates. How do we live our lives in the days between those dates? Someone said one time, it's the dash between the date of our birth and our death that really counts. It's that dash in the middle. Years ago, it is written of James Lewis Pettigrew that his life was so exemplary. Listen to this. After his death, the community got together and they erected a tombstone and they inscribed these words on it concerning his life. Unswayed by opinion, unseduced by flattery, undismayed by disaster, he confronted life with courage and death with Christian hope. Wow. What an epitaph that others would say about a life that was well lived. So next, Samuel exhorts the people to consider God's faithfulness. First, he said, look, examine my life. Now, Look at God. Consider his faithfulness to you. Verse 6. Then Samuel said to the people, It is the Lord who raised up Moses and Aaron and who brought your fathers up from the land of Egypt. Now, therefore, stand still, that I may reason with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous acts of the Lord, which he did to you and your fathers. Now, so he's going to take him on a little history lesson. When Jacob had gone into Egypt... And your fathers cried out to the Lord. Then the Lord sent Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. 
And when they forgot the Lord their God, he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hezron, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against them. Then they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned, because we have forsaken the Lord and served the Baals and Astaroths. But now deliver us from the hand of our enemies, and we will serve you. And the Lord sent Zerubbabel, who is Gideon, you'll see in your Bibles in the margin, and Bedan. Now, Bedan's an interesting name. We actually don't know that person. He's not mentioned in the Bible, but evidently he was a judge, a deliverer that had helped the children of Israel in their past that they knew from their history. But his name, we don't know his story personally in the scriptures. And then he mentions another judge, Jephthah, and then Samuel. So these are four names of judges that led the children of Israel in deliverance that God helped raise up among his people to help his people to fight the enemy and their battles. So it goes on, and he and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you dwelt safely. And when you saw that Nahash, king of the Amorites, came against you, you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. So Samuel declares to the people, Consider the goodness of God. Consider how good God is and how good he's been to you, how he's not done you ever any harm or any evil. And then he next tells the people, God has done nothing but good to you, and he's been righteous before you. So why did you ask for a king to reign over you, he says? Why have you turned your back on the Lord your God? So it's interesting that Samuel rehearses the history of the Israelites back to the people of God, and he does so in light of, did you notice, verse 7, the righteous acts of the Lord. He says, consider the righteous acts of the Lord and consider those righteous acts in your history and in his dealings with you, in his leadings with you, in his grace upon your life, in his mercy towards you. Samuel challenges the people to recognize the Lord in both the establishment and the preservation of their nation. Consider that God has established your nation. He's preserved us as a people. Consider those things. He's been righteous unto you. Don't forget that. And God, help us not to forget that. It's so sad to me that there are so many in our country that want to erase God's goodness in establishing our nation and protecting us as a nation. May we never, ever forget God's good hand upon us in our country. We, like the children of Israel, we dare not forget, because if we forget, we forget to our own harm, just as they did. Look at verse 13. Now, therefore, here is the king whom you have chosen, whom you have desired. And take note, the Lord has set a king over you. If you fear the Lord and obey, serve him and obey his voice, do not rebel against the commandment of the Lord. Then both you and the king who reigns over you will continue 
following the Lord, your God. However, if you do not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you as it was against your fathers. So Samuel says, you asked for a king, you've got a king. Here he is, you know. And God had planned all along to provide a king for his people. That was part of his plan. He just wasn't ready yet for his people to be ruled by the king that he was to prepare for them to have as their first king. He wasn't ready yet. His choice was not yet ready. Of course, we know that choice was David, right? But the people settled for second best. They settled for God's permissive will, and they got Saul. And how often people settle for second best in their life. This is all too often our story. They marry before they're ready. They move on to a better position for what they see as better pay. They compromise in little things thinking that, yeah, I'll compromise here and there, but then when I cut to the place, the things that really matter and the place where I really need to, to really pay attention and do things right, I'll, I'll do better then. We settle for second choice all too easily. God tells the people, a king does not exempt you from obedience to me. So here's your king. You ask for a king, here's your king. But that doesn't mean you're exempt from obeying me. You're still accountable to me. You're still going to be required to follow my ways and follow my, my commandments. And look what Samuel says next to the people. If you choose to obey the Lord, then he will show his mercy to you. But if you disobey the Lord, Samuel tells them, he will surely bring harm to the nation. Did you know God chastise, chastises the people that are his children? He chastens his children. He disciplines you and I because we are his kids. Hebrews 12, 6 says, For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. God's discipline to us is actually a sign of his love. The fact that God doesn't allow us to continue in our wicked ways. He doesn't allow us as Christians to stay in sin, to live in sin, and be happy. We're going to be miserable, and we're going to find out that, that God chastens us in order to bring us back to himself because he loves us and he cares so much about us. How wonderful the Lord never gives up on us. That's what I love about this. You know, a lot of people think that, oh, grace and mercy is in the New Testament. That's where Jesus is all there. But in the Old Testament, it's a God of wrath and judgment. But when you read this chapter, there's a whole lot of mercy and grace from God here. God tells his people, look, I am not going to give up on you. And if you repent from doing wrong, I'm always going to be there to help you, and I'm always going to be there to receive you as my children. But it requires obedience for the Lord to reign over our lives as our Savior and God for his blessing and favor, favor to be ours. 
The same God of the Old Testament is the same God in the New Testament. He's the same God. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, next, an amazing thing happens. So now the scene kind of changes from view as we're reading the chapter. And we're going to kind of look up at the skies, if you will. Verse 16. Now, therefore, Samuel's talking to the people, stand and see this great thing which the Lord will do before your eyes. Is today not the wheat harvest? I will call to the Lord and he will send thunder and rain that you may perceive and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking a king for yourself. So Samuel called to the Lord, to the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. Now, I find this very fascinating. To you and I, we read this, and it's like, okay, yeah, so he did thunder and, and rain, and we saw a lot of that and heard a lot of that in the last few weeks, haven't we? And so what's so spectacular about that? But this is harvest season. It never rained in harvest season. It was the dry season of the year. This was a miraculous sign, a miracle that the people all understood, and it was a sign that was provided at the word of Samuel, when he actually declared, look to the sky, and you are going to see rain falling, and you're going to hear thunder, thundering. This miracle validates the words that Samuel is declaring to God's people. They have no doubt that this is truly God speaking to them. And I find it interesting, as I've kind of surveyed when I was studying for this message, surveying my life a little bit. And at every major junction point, God has provided supernatural miracles to confirm his direction and his leading in my life. When he called me into, into ministry, he provided a divine supernatural miracle to confirm his call. When he called me to go to Bible college, that was another supernatural miracle that God used to get me to Bible college. When God called Laura and I to this church almost 40 years ago, that was all supernaturally orchestrated by the Lord. If you knew, if I had time to give you all the details and share all the things that happened, you would be amazed. All these major events in my life, and I think as you go back and survey your life, you'll remember that God has indeed confirmed his direction and his will, his plan for you in supernatural ways. That's what he does here. And it's interesting that when Pastor Aaron and I uh, about four and a half years ago, we're starting to pray about and consider merging our two churches together. God confirmed that big decision to both of us as pastors, individual, individually, and very personally. For me, he confirmed it with two heart prayers, secret prayers, that he answered miraculously, and no one else even knew about those prayers, not even my wife, okay? This was just me and God, 
heart prayer to heart of the Lord, you know. And, and it's like, and he answers those prayers supernaturally. Only God could do it. And for Pastor Aaron, it was interesting. God confirmed him by bringing two people across his path that actually confirmed the merger of our two churches that had no idea that we were even praying about or considering that. And they actually brought it up to him. It was pretty amazing. And so these miracles, God wants to do them to confirm his will to us, and he does that in divine ways. If you're a Christian today, God has sent his thunder and his rain into your heart and in your life to confirm his word and his gospel and your need for Jesus Christ. If you're here today, you are a result of a divine confirmation of a miracle in your personal life that God has spoken to you, said you need my son Jesus. You need to open your heart up to Jesus Christ that you might know salvation and the forgiveness of your sin. That's a miracle from God, and he confirms that word with divine confirmation. Any sinner that comes to recognize their need for their Savior, Jesus Christ, in their life, has experienced a miracle. So look at their reaction to the miracle, the, the reaction. Verse 19, And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for us, for your servants of the Lord your God, for that we may not die for we have added to our sins the evil of asking a king for ourselves. So notice something. The people here ask Samuel to pray for them. Samuel, pray for them. It's kind of an interesting wordplay because Samuel's name literally means, the name of Samuel means requested of or asked for. Hey, Samuel, the one who was asked for, would you please Ask for us. Pray on our behalf to the Lord. He, of course, we remember, his whole birth was miraculous, and he was a, a, a divine miracle because he was granted to Hannah, who had asked the Lord for a son, remember? The people are sorry for their sins, but are they really? They seem sorry, but are they really? What would have happened, I wonder, when I get to this place, I wonder, it's like, what would have happened if they would have said, look, we repent. We should not have asked for a king. We don't want a king. We'll have no other king rule of ours, but God, you are our only king. We will not have a king rule over us. We repent forever asking. What would God have done? if they would have truly repented and said, we will not make King Saul king over us. We will have no king but the Lord our God. It's sad to note. I don't know whether you've kind of no noted it in your mind, but as we've studied the last five chapters, chapter 8 through 12 here, not once did the people repent for asking for a king. I mean, they are told numerous times by Samuel, you are sinned against the Lord. You are rejecting the Lord. Even God says, they're rejecting me. Not once do they re really repent and really recant and say, we 
repent. We do not want a king. They're sorry, but I don't think they truly have repented. Now, look at the goodness and the graciousness of God. He confronts them over and over and over and over about this sin that grieves his heart. And look at his graciousness in verse 20. Then Samuel says to the people, do not fear. You have done all this wickedness, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. He's telling them, look, even though you've done wrong, you've sinned greatly. Keep following the Lord. Serve him with all your heart. Don't let your past sins and your past mistakes ruin your life and your future, the life that you can live in faithful service to the Lord. And I really believe that that's a word from God for someone here today. That God wants to say that to you personally. Don't let your past sins, your past mistakes... The things you've done in the past, don't let those prevent you, hinder you, ruin your opportunity to live every day from this day forward faithfully with your whole heart to the Lord. That's the heart of God. He's saying, look, yes, you've done wrong in the past. Let's stop. Let's make today a new day. Make today a time where you're going to change direction and you're going to move forward in the things that I have for you. Don't let your sins paint a picture that is so dark that you can't see the presence of Jesus standing right beside you, saying, I will walk with you. I will lead you in paths of righteousness for my name's sake. You have a future. You have a hope. And I have plans for you. Come, I'll forgive you. Repent of your sins and turn to me, and I'll walk through life with you, says the Lord. Verse 21, he says, And do not turn aside, for then we would go after empty things which cannot profit or deliver, for they are nothing. It's amazing to me that people will worship so many stupid, empty, foolish things, evil things when you reject the Lord. When you refuse to worship God, when you reject God, you open your life up to worshiping the craziest things, the saddest things. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, God laments. He says, for my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, number one. The fountain of living waters. Number two, they've hewn for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. You forsake the fountain of living water for a hole in the ground that's broken and it can't even hold water? How foolish. That's what God says to his people. And that's what people do when they forsake God. We were created, every one of us, we're created with the need to worship something or someone. Every human being has that need within them, to worship something or someone. And when we receive to worship, refuse rather to worship God, then we open ourselves up to worship vain and empty things. Speaking of the last days in which we are living, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, it says this in verses 
3 and 4. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. How pathetic. The book of Romans tells us that God will actually give them over to worship the birds of the air and all manner of creeping things. And we find even today, people, men and women, they will worship so many crazy things. They will worship so many fantastically false fables. Think about it. The fantastically false fables that people believe and worship today. It's sad. And people worship their ancestors. They worship their bodies. They worship animals. They worship creatures. They even worship the earth itself. Oh, the folly when we reject to worship and honor the God who is the creator of all, the true and living God. Verse 22, it says, For the Lord will not forsake his people, for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you his people. These words just drip with the goodness and the grace of God. Can you hear his, his heart, his love for his people? When we come to Christ, God places his spirit within us, each one of us. When we come to Christ, his spirit is placed within us. He puts his name upon us. He actually signs his name upon us. We are his. We are his. I like to think of it, you know, when you go to the grocery store and you go to the, the produce aisle and, and you see those stickers on the fruit, you know. You're a Chiquita banana. You are his. You're his child. And he puts his name upon us. He, he puts his spirit within us. And that means no matter how stupid we are, no matter how much, we stumble no matter how often we fail. He will never, ever give up on us. He will love us through it all, beyond it all, because we are his children. I love Hebrews 13.5. It says, let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Jesus will never, ever, ever give up on you or me. And when we think of this, it's really a mystery, isn't it? That God would love us so much that he would extend so much patience toward us. He's patient. It's a good thing, isn't it? He's patient with us. He loves us so much that he'll be patient for us. I like what 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10 says, for you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Wow. 
who once were not a people, but now are the people of God, who once had not obtained mercy, but now you have obtained mercy, and that mercy will never, ever run dry. Verse 23 is a verse that you will never forget for the rest of your life if you've never read this verse before. Listen to this. It says a very interesting truth. Samuel is talking. It says, moreover, remember the people have said, look, they saw the thunder, they saw the rain, they said, look, pray for us, Samuel, pray for us. And he says this in verse 23, moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. But I will teach you the good and the right way. Isn't this verse interesting? So Samuel declares to the people, if I don't pray for you, if I didn't pray for you, and if I don't continue to pray for you, I would be sinning against God himself. Isn't that an interesting truth? And certainly you and I, we all think, you know, we feel like our leaders. Pastor Aaron, he's supposed to be praying for us because he's our pastor, isn't he? He's our leader. He should be praying for us. And so we look to our leaders and we feel like, you know, our leaders should be praying for those who are being led by them. Isn't that kind of something we normally would take for granted? I think all of us kind of feel like or want to believe that our leaders, our pastor is praying for us. But what about the rest of us? What about us, right? Are there times when we sin against the Lord because we fail to pray for others? Is it possible that not just prayerlessness, but not praying when God specifically puts it on our heart to take that time and stop and pray for someone who needs prayer. And we just go on about our busy life. We don't want to be bothered. We won't, don't want to stop. We don't want to take time and pray. We need to learn to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit when he calls us to pray and intercede for others. And we all were, were actually introduced to an amazing illustration of this verse lived out in the flesh right before not just our nation, but before the whole world just recently. Just this month, we saw an amazing example of the truth of this verse being played out on national TV. January 2nd, when the Buffalo Bills were playing the Cincinnati Bengals, remember DeMar Hamlin, Hamlin collapsed on the field after he made that tackle. And immediately, all the teammates gathered around DeMar, and they started praying. They took a knee for the right reason, and they took a knee all the way around him and shielded him, and they started to pray. And then the Bengals, their team, got down on their knees, and they started to pray. And it was contagious. It actually went all the way around the stadium, and the people were all praying for them. The game had to be canceled. I heard they're doing a makeup game today, just in a few hours exactly. Uh, but of particular note to me, and to really illustrate the truth of this verse, I found it compelling that 
that the ESPN sportscaster found himself compelled to pray for DeMar on live national TV. Now, I know most of you have seen it, but maybe some of you missed it, but you deserve to see it again. And so we're going to run that video real quick. And let's watch ESPN's Dan Orlowski as he prays instantly on live TV. You know, and I think even through the midst of absolute tragedy last night, I think you saw some of the beauty of football mm -hmm. as well, that it's brought us all here together. Um, you know, like, this is a little bit different. I heard, I've heard it all day, like thoughts and prayers. And you just heard Scherf and Jonathan Allen say, like, all we can do is pray for him. And I've heard the Buffalo Bills organization say, like, we believe in prayer. And maybe this is not the right thing to do, but I want to, it's just on my heart that I want to pray for It is. DeMar Hamlin right, right, right now. Um, I'm going to do it out loud. I'm going to close my eyes. I'm going to bow my head, and I'm just going to pray for him. Um, God, we come to you in these moments that we don't understand, that are hard, uh, because we believe that you're God, and coming to you and praying to you um, has impact. We're, we're sad. We're angry. Um, and we want answers, but some things are unanswerable. We just want to pray. Truly come to you and pray for strength for Damar, for healing for Damar, for comfort for Damar, to be with his family, to give them peace. If we didn't believe that prayer didn't work, we wouldn't ask this of you, God. Um, I believe in prayer. We believe in prayer. We lift up Damar Hamlin's name in your name. Amen. 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 It took so much courage for him to do that. Can you imagine? Let me ask you a question. Would it have been a sin for Dan if he had quenched the spirit and said, look, I'm on national TV. This is not the time or the place to do such a thing. Don't you see the Lord had, I mean, that was not just him. That was the Holy Spirit putting on his heart to do something that was so outrageous in our day and age. And God will do that for you as he does for me. There are times when you and I are going to have a burden to pray, and we need to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. God forbid that we would sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for our brother or sister that needed prayer at the time when God lays it upon our hearts to pray. We need to be obedient and pray. Let's conclude this, this chapter, these last two verses, 24 and 25. Only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart and consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. So do you want to live a life that counts for eternity? Do you want to live a life that really matters, a life that is lived well. It says, fear the Lord, serve him in truth with all your heart and remember the great things he has done for you. And a life lived well will include those four ingredients, but a life lived well can only be done as it's begun by having a relationship with Jesus Christ. 
And if you're here today and you've never made that commitment to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior personally, I want to give you that opportunity to do that today. If you're here today and God is just speaking to your heart and saying you need to open your heart and receive my son as your Savior, you need to turn from your sins and ask me to forgive you of your sins. God will forgive you, and he will give you everlasting life. You may be here today, and you've kind of been wandering this way. You've made a lot of mistakes, and God may be saying to your heart and life today, it is time for you to come back and get into action. It's no longer time for you to stay on the sidelines. It's time to come back and start serving me with your whole heart. Would you stand with me? Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, I love that you are so gracious. Here we've studied your people. They've sinned so grievously against you, and yet, Lord, your words to them are truth, but they drip with graciousness, love, and mercy, and compassion, and kindness. And that's your word to us today. Lord, you have spoken to each one of our hearts. And if there's anyone here today and you say, you know, I need to make Jesus Christ my Lord, my Savior. I want to give my life to Jesus Christ today. If that's you, I'd like you to just raise your hand. And by raising your hand, you're just saying, I want Jesus Christ in my life. I want to give my heart and my life to him today. Yeah. Keep those hands up. And, and you might be here today, and you've been wandering. You've been one of those that have been, been kind of zigzagging through life and bumbling and making mistakes. And you're saying, I feel like God is speaking to me. And he's saying, I have another chance. He hasn't given up on me. I want to come back to him. Is there anyone here that would say, yes, I want to I come back from him to him. I want to come back to him and, and just open your heart once again to his forgiveness, his grace, and his love. I see your hands, but most of all, God sees those hands, and that's what's most important. And I want you to pray this prayer in your heart with me. In fact, let's all just pray this prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you that you are good and you are merciful. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to die for my sins. Lord, I give you my whole heart today. I ask you to come into my life and change me. Make me the person you want me to be. Lord, from this day forward, I want to serve you and worship only you and live my life for you. In Jesus' name, amen.